would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We will be looking together at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer before reading His Word. My Father, we thank You for the great truth and the eternal comfort that Your Word brings to us. We thank You for appropriate conviction that comes as we read and study it. We acknowledge this morning our need for the ongoing work of the Spirit of Christ within the hearts of all who are here. Lord, may we look to Him and acknowledge our need for illumination and for understanding. For without His work, these are just words upon the page. We thank You for Your sovereign goodness to us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Our senior hires on Wednesday night have been studying for the better part of this school year this book of 1 Corinthians. And what we've seen as we've looked at this book together is a troubled church and yet a faithful and patient Lord. Within the church of Corinth, what you have is many converts from pagan and Gentile background who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The culture in which they live takes daily life and pagan worship and very much integrates those two together. And so part of the trouble that arose for the church in Corinth was learning to live as a Christian in a fallen world, a world that is very much hostile to the Christian faith. Corinth was a city that was filled with self-indulgence, with pagan worship and sexual immorality, a world not unlike our own. Not only are the Corinthian believers struggling to learn to live out their newfound identity in Christ Jesus in an enticing world, but they're also struggling to learn how to live together within the church community, within the body of Christ. You see, it's bad enough that they face this regular, daily onslaught of temptation to return to their former pagan life of self-indulgence. But the church community should be a place filled with hope and comfort. 
It should be a place filled with unity around the finished work of Christ in which there is genuine love toward one another. But instead, the church of Corinth had become a place that was filled with division in which factions arose and divisive words created rifts in relationships between one another. In a church that seems to be filled with problems at every turn, the Apostle Paul, through the obvious work of the Holy Spirit, offers patient instruction, loving guidance, careful nurture, and appropriate rebuke. Certainly at times, Paul becomes exasperated at their foolishness, but even when he offers strong words of exhortation to them, he never fails to express his love for them. He never fails to hold out to them the hope of forgiveness through the finished work of the risen Lord. You see, what sin does is it rips apart relationships and it isolates individuals. But notice how Paul begins this section in verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers... And so by using this familial, inclusive language, Paul is very intentionally identifying with these Gentile converts, saying to them, it is the covenant of grace, the covenant that unified us all the way back there to the children of Israel under Moses' leadership that binds us together. It's that same covenant that unifies us in Christ. It's not me versus you, me above you, but it's us Together, striving to encourage one another to persevere in the Christian life. Now, in this section of 1 Corinthians, what Paul has been doing in chapters 9 and 10 is trying to encourage the church members to persevere in Christian living. You might remember that familiar analogy that he uses there at the end of chapter 9 as he likens the Christian life to competing in an Olympic type race. You know, for us, the Winter Olympics are just around the corner. And as you watch those events of those amazing athletes from all around the world, the broadcasters always break away and they give you those human interest stories about the athlete. People that you never knew existed. But that doesn't mean that they just woke up one day and decided, you know, I'll go fly to Russia. I'll compete at the highest level possible. But instead, what you will find is athletes who have devoted their entire lives to preparing for this one event. It's all they think about. It's all that drives them. It determines what they eat, who they spend time with, how their schedules in life are oriented. Everything is consumed with trying to win that prize. And what are they after? Paul says in chapter 9, verse 25, they are after temporary fame, momentary glory. Their life is completely rearranged for a medal, for the spotlight, even if just for a moment. And four years from now, you'll watch those same events and you won't remember who won them four years ago. What Paul says if that is this is true for them, if this is true for them, if their life is dominated by such a pursuit, a pursuit that will perish, a pursuit that will fade, then how much more should the life of the believer revolve around the risen Lord Jesus? For we, you see, are persevering toward an imperishable prize, a prize kept in heaven for us, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. All of the Christian life 
should be dominated by sort of this enraptured pursuit of the living Lord Jesus. Our thoughts, our desires, our words, our pursuits, our priorities, our longings, our hopes, our dreams, our actions, everything in life should be engaged in our pursuit of the living Christ. Now we'll acknowledge that that's true. Yes, that's what God's Word teaches. But we know that there are trials and there are temptations waiting for us at every turn of this life, pulling at the affections of our hearts, telling us that it's much easier to just give up on this life of persevering in the Christian faith. Instead, isn't it just much easier to live for the moment and to live for the pursuit of your own desires? So how does Paul in this passage from 1 Corinthians 10 encourage us to persevere? How does he press us towards preserving grace? How does he help us as God's people to grow in faithfulness to him, the one who has redeemed us? Well, first in verses 1 through 5, Paul looks back through the history of ancient Israel and points out privileges received. Privileges received for God's people. Well, what sort of privileges did ancient Israel receive under the leadership of Moses? Well, first, Paul says in verses 1 and 2 that they were under the cloud. Now, what Paul has in mind here is the evident guidance of the Lord as he leads them out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. We read in Exodus chapter 13, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now we do not have, of course, that visible manifestation of God's presence. But if you'll think back to our sermon a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 103, we serve a God whose throne is established in heaven and who rules over all. He is the same Lord who directs and guides the steps of every one of His children throughout this earthly life. And so for them, the common experience, you see, was being under the cloud. For us, it's learning the truth that God continues to be intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. It's no longer the pillar of cloud that guides us, but the reality is it's something much better. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in the hearts of God's people. Now the second privilege that they received also in verses 1 and 2 is that they passed through the sea. And of course here what Paul has in mind is Exodus 14 when the children of Israel crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground and the enemies of the Lord were destroyed behind them. Now why does Paul say that in these acts the people of Israel are baptized baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Well, our Baptist friends might look at this passage and say, well, here's proof of immersion. When you're baptized, you should go under the water because the Israelites were under the sea. But as good Presbyterians, we would say, well, clearly they weren't in the water. They were completely dry. If anything, they were sprinkled by the water as they walked through. And in fact, the only ones who went under the water were the Egyptians, and they were all killed. (laughs) But you see, Paul here is not, 
he's not addressing the mode of baptism. In this context, he's not stating how baptism should be administered. He's simply stating that Moses was the God-appointed leader of the people. And they were identified with Moses as that leader, as that mediator at this time in history. And so the word baptism in this context is simply a way of speaking of their identification with Moses. They all had this common experience together in the covenant community. They all had this common experience of being led by the Lord and passing through the sea on dry ground. We'll see, that, we'll see why that's important in a moment. But here's another privilege that they all received together in verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food. Well, what common food did they eat together in the wilderness? Well, in Exodus 16, they were given bread from heaven. And we read in verse 35 of that chapter that they ate manna for 40 years. Day after day, this heavenly food, this spiritual food fell from heaven and fed them until they entered the land of Canaan. And then the final privilege that they received mentioned by Paul in verse 4 is that they drank from the rock. And what is all this about? Well, in Exodus chapter 17, the people grumbled that they had nothing to drink. They act like they are going to die. And in verse 6 of that chapter, God says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now later on in the book of Numbers chapter 20, God provides water from a rock again. And so this rock appears at the beginning and at the end of those wilderness years. Now there were some rabbinical teachers in the time of Paul that believed that there was a literal traveling rock that followed the Israelites all of those years throughout the wilderness. Sort of a a mobile well for them all to drink upon. Well there's no evidence in the Old Testament text that that's what's going on. There's no evidence here in 1 Corinthians 10 that this is what Paul was teaching. But notice what Paul says about the rock here in 1 Corinthians. The rock that provided life for them, the rock that gave them living water, the rock that gave them spiritual drink was none other than Christ himself. And so on the one hand, there was a literal, physical rock from which the Lord provided water, sparing the life of the people. Just as the manna was physical bread from heaven, giving life to the rebellious children. But at the same time, this food is spiritual food, and this rock is a spiritual rock. It is Christ himself. And if the rock was Christ, you see, then he was with them all those years ago in his loving, providential care. It is Christ himself who was the preexistent one providing for the redemption of God's people. When they received this bread from heaven on a daily basis, they were meant to look beyond the manna to the bread of life who sustained them spiritually. When they ate the manna, it was not just to be about getting their bellies filled. And when water poured from that rock and they drank to satisfaction, it was not to be simply about getting their thirst quenched. But they were to look beyond those things to the Lord God himself, the one who provides life, the one who sustains them spiritually, the one who provides a substitute 
for their wickedness and rebellion. Because you see, it's the Lord himself. It is Christ himself who identifies himself with the rock in Exodus. He says to Moses, I will stand before you on that rock and you shall strike it with the rod of judgment. You see, it's the people who are there on that day making accusation against the Lord. They are the ones who deserve judgment. And yet he takes the judgment they deserve upon himself. And then he provides living water to sustain them and to redeem them from wickedness. Now, Paul states clearly here in 1 Corinthians 10 that this is Jesus Christ himself. He was there in the desert all those years ago. He is the one who took judgment upon himself that these rebellious people might find forgiveness and life. He is the one who received that spear of judgment thrust into his side from which blood and water flowed. He is the one who secured our redemption on that great day as he drank to the fullness the cup of God's wrath that we might have forgiveness and life. And here's what we are meant to see. Here's what all of these common experiences of the people of Israel are meant to point us to. You see, they are our forefathers. And so it's a common experience for us as well. They all saw God's leading by the cloud. They all experienced victory over Egypt in the crossing of the Red Sea. They all ate of the manna, that spiritual food from above. And they were sustained. They all drank from the rock and had life. But then what does Paul say in verse 5? Though they had this common experience together, most of them died in the wilderness. And so here's the question for us, and we'll see this driven home for us in the next paragraph. But what does this mean for us? See, when you think of the children of Israel, do not think of them as some unenlightened, far-removed people who were just foolish, living in a separate category from yourself. Do not assume that their struggles are not your struggles. What they were guilty of, you have the same potential for in your own life. They all had the same experience, but did not enter into the rest offered to them. There was a lack of persevering grace because they presumed upon the grace of God. Now here's the parallel, I think, between Israel, between Corinth, and between us in our own time. Observation of covenant benefits alone does not bring redemption. See, to just participate peripherally in the activities of God's people is not sufficient for salvation. Just because you gather and participate with God's people, that does not equate justification. And what we're learning here is the importance of persevering grace. What we're learning here is for each one of us to consider our own hearts before the Lord. Paul then goes on in this next section in verses 6 through 10 to point out specific areas of unfaithfulness in the children of Israel. In verse 6, Paul says, Here are things that took place as types, as examples for us that we might consider our own hearts and not desire evil. And then he says in verse 7, the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. 
Now what Paul has in mind here is that infamous event from Exodus chapter 32 when Moses is up on Mount Sinai meeting with the Lord and the people become restless and they make for themselves the golden calf. It's the temptation toward idolatry. And idolatry is very simply replacing worship of the Lord with worship and service of someone or something else other than the Lord. For them it was bowing before a golden calf. But it was more than that. It was what that image was supposed to represent. It was a false trust. Because in their mind, God was removed. He's remote. He's aloof. He's just sort of utterly transcendent. Up there on the mountain with Moses. We need something a little more accessible. We need someone a little more palatable, a little more real. Something we can control. Something we can manipulate. Something that gratifies our desires. Again, idolatry in our life is giving the love of our hearts to something other than the living God. It's looking to something else to give you significance, to give you meaning, to give you purpose. Because you're ultimately worshiping it rather than God. And it might be such things as money and status and possessions, academic achievements, vocational success, social activities, freedom, control, respect, love, affection... It's the thing that the image represents that we have in common with the children of Israel. And Charles Hodge asks, asks this interesting question. He says, do you think that when the children of Israel created that golden calf and bowed down to it, that they thought they were being unfaithful? As they were eating and drinking and carrying on, did they think of themselves as idolaters? Did they wake up that morning and say to themselves, we just don't believe in the Lord anymore. Let's become an idolatrous people. Instead, what we read in Exodus 32, verse 5, is that Aaron builds an altar before the golden image and says to the people, tomorrow we will feast to the Lord. They claimed to be worshiping God. Their hearts are absolutely divided. And yet collectively, as a people, they are convincing themselves that what they are doing is right and appropriate worship of God. And I think the warning here is simply this, that the human heart can justify anything. Your heart, my heart, are wicked and deceived. And our hearts will tell us that whatever we do is right and good and acceptable. Nobody sets out to be an idolater But that's where your heart leads you when it goes unchecked. Well, how else were they unfaithful? Well, verse 8, they were guilty of sexual immorality. Now, what Paul has in mind here is an incident from Numbers chapter 25, in which the children of Israel united themselves in sexual immorality with the people of Moab. But it wasn't just a physical act. They were, you see, taken captive by their false worship. And some 23,000 of them were killed. And so again, we see the same principles of the human heart. We have to recognize how are those things evident in my own life? Giving in to lustful desires. Convincing yourself that that which the Lord forbids is good and desirable and appropriate. Being driven more by the lust of your own heart rather than the purposes of God. And then in verse 9, Paul goes on and brings up another Old Testament incident in which the Lord is put to the the test 
and the people are put to death by serpents. Now Paul here is referencing an event from Numbers chapter 21 in which the people complained about the Lord's provision. They're tired of manna and they want some variety in their diet. This testing of the Lord is bringing covenant accusation against him, you see. It's accusing him of failing to do what he is supposed to do for them. And so judgment comes upon them in the form of poisonous snakes. And who are they complaining against? According to Paul here in verse 9. Notice he says again, even all those years ago, they were putting Christ to the test. So how is complaining about manna from heaven, how is that putting Christ to the test? Well, this first points us again to the deity of Christ. He was there in the desert, caring for his people. Just as he was there, as Paul says in verse 4, as the rock providing life-giving water for the people, so he is there now in his provision of bread from heaven. And Jesus himself makes this claim in John chapter 6. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so Jesus is the bread of life. And it is through his sacrifice for sins that we have forgiveness. Only in him do we have life eternal. You see, when the manna first appeared, it was a glorious thing. People were filled with excitement and filled with enthusiasm, absolutely amazed. It was a food that tasted great and there were all kinds of things that they could do with this manna in order to live. But over time, it became commonplace. They took it for granted. It was just a boring and mundane part of life. Yeah, yeah, miraculous bread from heaven again. And you can imagine your children on a cold day like this morning. I went out yesterday to get manna. It's his turn. (laughs) So when they complain about the manna from heaven, when they want something else, what they're saying is that God's gracious Miraculous provision is not sufficient. It just doesn't do it for me anymore. What about the tendency that we might have in our own life to question the Lord's goodness? How frequently do we take the miraculous redemption of our Savior for granted? The bread from heaven, the one who gives us life, who forgives us of all of our sins... The finished work of Christ perhaps once thrilled us and amazed us. But over time, it's just, he lived, he died, he rose. Do you see what Paul is pressing us to consider in our own lives? Do you see how you and I are like the children of Israel? And finally, in verse 10, Paul refers to one last incident from the wilderness years in which the people grumbled against the Lord and were destroyed by the destroyer. They were put to death by the Lord God himself. Of course, the children of Israel grumbled frequently during their years of desert occupation. And so Paul could have in mind here several different events. He could have in mind Numbers chapter 11, 
where the people complain and fire falls from heaven and consumes those who are on the edge of the camp. He could have in mind Numbers chapter 16, in which a man named Korah and his family stood up and questioned Moses' ability to lead the people. The earth opened up and swallowed Korah and his family, and then fire fell from heaven and consumed those who stood with Korah in his rebellion. Now, both of those events, if Paul has either one or perhaps both in mind, they both start with something seemingly small. It's just complaining, isn't it? It's just complaining about food, complaining about leadership, things that we do all the time. Just think for a moment of the frequency with which we grumble and complain in our own lives. We grumble that the food before us is boring to eat. We grumble that the clothes in our closet are not sufficient. We complain that life is just mundane that our boss doesn't appreciate us, that our work is unfulfilling, that we don't get the recognition that we think we deserve, that our teachers are too hard, our classes are too difficult. We complain about the people in our life as though if they were just gone, life would be so much easier. We're gifted at always finding something to complain about. We complain about our lives and then we act as though we're justified in doing so. Well, why? Why are we grumblers? Why are we complainers? Because we want a trouble-free life, don't we? We want a life that's free from trials. We don't want suffering. We don't want difficulties in our life. We want life to be easy. We don't really want to have to trust in God. So you see, whether it's idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, grumbling and complaining against God, we are them, aren't we? Now, what's the purpose in all of this? What is Paul's purpose in sort of reminding the Corinthians of the low points of Israel's history? What are some applications that we are meant to draw from this passage? Well, the first application is is just this. It's to learn from their example. Verse 6 says, These things took place as examples, as types for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. The caution is for us to consider such tendencies in our own life. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing Christ, grumbling and complaining. These are all things that are within our own hearts and that we are all tempted toward. And so know yourself. Know your weaknesses. One of the Puritans, uh, he put it like this. He said, the seed of every known sin lies dormant within my own heart. The second application is have a teachable heart. Verse 11, learn from these examples of Israel's history and these things you see were written down for our instruction. Someone makes the point here that instruction can really only occur when there is a presupposition that there's some form of opposition that needs to be overcome. In other words, if we are ever going to receive instruction... There must be an acknowledgement on our part that we tend to resist. And so that wall of defensiveness that we frequently put up in our own lives must be removed. A third application. Check your pride. Verse 12. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now Paul is not saying that there is no assurance of salvation. In fact, we can have confidence that we are the Lord's. But what he's warning against here in the context of these examples is the prideful presumption 
that you can't fall into temptation. The assumption that you are just somehow beyond all of these things. You know, that temptation towards idolatry, that's for somebody else. The temptation towards sexual immorality, I'm beyond that. The temptation to test the Lord Jesus Christ, that's for this guy next to me. The grumbling and complaining, that just doesn't apply to me. If we presume we are immune, then we simply open up our hearts for sin to come in and take root. Instead, we are to take heed lest we fall. Take such warnings seriously in our own lives that there might be perseverance unto the end. And a final application is this. Rejoice. Delight in the faithfulness of God. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. You see, when we presume that our situation is unique... That no one knows what I'm going through. That's simply a denial of what God's word teaches us here. The Lord Jesus himself was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. We have a perfect advocate. We have one who can identify with us, who can help us through temptation when they come in life. You see, ultimately, we are not to dwell on the failures of the children of Israel. We're not meant to just stop and dwell upon all of our own failures, for there are many. We're to learn from them. We're to grow in wisdom. We're to grow in discernment. Certainly, we're to be watchful and be diligent, learning from these examples. Paul makes that clear. But that's not enough. That's just enough to overwhelm us. That's just enough to leave us discouraged. But instead, in all of this, we are meant to see the Lord's preserving grace and love toward his people. His persevering grace in our lives. His faithfulness to help us withstand temptation. We are a people filled with wickedness, rebellion, and sin. A people who accuse him and who are guilty before a holy God. Yet he is the God who in the person of Christ stands in our place, stands in the place of those who are wicked. He stands in the place of idolaters like you and me. He stands in the place of the sexually immoral like you and me. He stands in the place of those who rise up and make charges and bring accusation against him. People like you and me. He stands in the place of the grumbler and the complainer, the one who wants a trouble-free life, who thinks that he is deserving of easy life and anything that comes in that we don't appreciate, feeling justified and grumbling and complaining, people like you and me. He receives the blow of judgment that our sins deserve. See, what I think we need continually throughout the Christian life, and what I think this text offers to us, is confrontation and comfort. Loving exposure of the great need that we have for the work of Christ and the hope that our sins are atoned for. And as we grow to understand that all of our sins are atoned for, why would that not lead naturally to a longing for persevering grace in our own lives? Again, Charles Hodge, he says, Those whom God has promised to save, He has promised to make watchful. May every heart rejoice and delight in that comfort.